Members of the 32nd Oil and the 24th Shannon who are with us, former members of both, eminent playwrights, poets, writers, above all else, active citizens in so many ways. And we're so pleased that you are here with us to celebrate International Women's Day. International Women's Day has become one of the most important annual events here in Oris and And I think that Sabine and I regarded as a privilege to have had the opportunity throughout our lives to work with others in the promotion of equality and in so many different campaigns for the rights of women. So thus it has been a, a real joy for us since 2011 to have Orsa Nutron become a place where we could bring together so many women and men too through their actions and their words are showing leadership in their pursuit of equality. We have, through the many events over the past six years, attempted to draw attention to the obstacles, the many challenges that remain in attaining true equality. And we, of course, have sought a course to celebrate the new, any new ground that was being broken in that regard. In the course of doing this, we have sought support for those who in Ireland today, who in Ireland, day in, day out, are confronting domestic violence. We've sought to direct attention to the plight of women in the developing world who face gender-based violence and discrimination and exclusion and poverty. We have, as I've said, of course, celebrated women's increasing influence in so many sectors in Ireland and abroad, including science and the media, business, the arts, the trade union movement. <clears throat> but we have focused too on the caring needs of a social economy, on childcare issues, and indeed the rights of breastfeeding mothers, which we've been celebrating every year. And today at our 2018 events, we celebrate in a special way women's increasing role and influence in politics, and in doing so take the opportunity to reflect on the journey that, that they have travelled, that we have travelled, a journey that must be resumed and which, from which we must continue. So Tongan Law had an assurance on a man, this doing galer, Kursi, Alia versus Machnavi, and a Verandalka Kinata Dianta, and went to Machn Coinish Donau. Agasa Kirkin Kinis a custom cart on a man. Is a law fresh and Margot May, the Smuina Vernadot Lagata Falka, is at all of sorrow force, Agasana Barney at all force Lilina, Matamit Kunakoramirshin and went to Mark. Each year, the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women adopts a theme uh, to echo the priority of their annual session. And this year, the Commission, chaired for the very first time by an Irish woman, has focused on the rights and activism of rural women, who make up over a quarter of the global population. Rural women constitute the largest single group of vulnerable workers in the world. And they also compose, potentially, and I think this is very important that we say this, one of the most transformative forces available on our planet to address the major issues of climate change, elimination of global poverty and sustainable development. 
This is because of their potential to act collectively and in solidarity, both within and between nations. In a world increasingly marked by inequalities of income, wealth, and I should say in relation to income and wealth, the inequality has deepened. It must, to some extent, uh, be recognised, I think, that even at Davos it has been recognised, <coughs> that even for the ultra-rich it is almost unsustainable. I think that it is an inequality not only in income and wealth, but of course in power and opportunity. And women thus are at once the most oppressed and also the group with the greatest capacity to challenge and change what is the present dysfunctional connection between economy, society and ecology and indeed gender. In the Global South, Women are the backbone of the rural agricultural labour force that has become increasingly integrated into the global economy. In sub-Saharan Africa, in South Asia, over 60% of all working women are employed in agriculture, often working long hours with no formal contracts or legal protection. And this precarious work is, of course, further structurally divided on the base of gender when you look closely at it, thus compounding income inequality in rural economies, in which the International Labour Organisation estimates the gender pay gap to be as high as 40%. In rural areas, unpaid work, and really I prefer to say too, work that is essential but is not granted recognition, Caring for the family, the sick and the elderly, collecting fuel, tragically often so in conditions of the threat of violence, as has happened even in relation to refugee camps. Subsistence agriculture is predominantly carried out by women, yet they are widely discriminated against in terms of land security and ownership. <coughs> Scandalously, some of the proposals for development would in fact remove them from the land altogether while leaving them with to practising in the sun. Similarly, a disproportionate amount of unpaid work, child-rearing, caring for relatives, domestic chores, falls to women the world over. And then, too, in a vision of economy that confines itself to what is measurable, and a very narrow version of that, the substance of what should matter in political economy is often lost. Conventional measures of national income and output, such as gross domestic product, which pepper the reports of global institutions and agencies, do not include that unpaid work which is so basic to enabling economic activity but above all else in sustaining so social cohesion. We are reminded of the alternatives that are there in such work as that of the great Danish economist Esther Bosserup, who has shown through her research that without concerted political action, women would continue to bear the cost of development through that double workload which is not criticised otherwise. Women living in precarious conditions with limited economic power are also the most vulnerable, of course, to the vagaries of global markets and the dangers of a rapidly changing climate, deforestation, desertification and the loss of biodiversity. I don't read, need to remind the activists who are gathered here today that when you see the images of this, you will see the presence of women in the worst consequences, women who are least responsible for the sources of what I have described. It is women and their children too who are more likely to become migrants, 
travelling either to cities or taking often long and perilous journeys to strange and distant countries. For women, the danger is compounded by the presence of those who would take advantage of even the most vulnerable through trafficking or indentured labour, or what is still present, the continuing dangers of slavery. So on a day such as today, let us all recall again that all the members of the United Nations have committed themselves through the Sustainable Development Goals to achieve gender equality and the empowerment of all women and girls. The United Nations Commission on the Status of Women has stated that in realising that goal, it requires nothing less than the elimination of geographic and gender inequalities in access to essential services, infrastructure, productive resources, land tenure, land, land tenure security, food security, nutrition, and income security and social protection. We have such a distance to travel, and I must say, sometimes when you read reports, our gait is very slow. In considering progress to achieve equality in our own society, we must always remember our sisters who face so many serious challenges elsewhere on the planet. Our efforts must reach out in solidarity, we must ask ourselves the questions, are our economic policies sufficient to meet this challenge, whether we are speaking of overseas development aid or, more importantly, the regulatory framework for international trade and flows of capital for investment? Are they capable of achieving the sustainable development goals to which we are committed in relation to gender equality, here at home and at global level. These are unavoidable questions, and of course, in posing those questions, they must not generate despair, but rather we must see and look and encourage, find the hope in how they are to be answered with results. And in considering these challenges that I have mentioned, it is important to remember that on today, this day in 2018, we are here to commemorate and celebrate those gains made in parliamentary representation by the hard-fought struggle for women's suffrage and to recall and draw strength from the depth of courage and conviction of the women who participated in that great legislative victory of a century ago. We must never forget these gains, those gains we have made, were won through struggle. They were not conceded easily and were indeed vigorously withheld in an atmosphere of inequality, patriarchy and authoritarianism, sometimes presented as the natural order of being. The attitude of far too many in supposedly polite society to that struggle might be summed up in an extract from an edition of the British weekly magazine Vanity Fair in 1896, describing the establishment of a branch of the suffrage organisation in Sligo by Eva and Constance Gorboot. Eva would be secretary of the branch and Constance was president. It is reprinted in the wonderful Dr Sonia Tiernan's edition of the political writings of Eva Gorboot and it read as follows. The new woman is still with us and shows herself where least expected, in the faraway regions of County Sligo, among the wives and daughters of the farmers and fishermen. The three pretty daughters of Sir Henry Gorbooth are creating a little excitement, not to say amusement. 
for the emancipation of their sex. <laughs> Miss Gorbuth and her sister, supported by a few devoted yokels, have been holding a few meetings in connection with the women's suffrage, or rather, should I say, the revolt of the daughters movement. Their speeches are eloquent, unconventional and non-convincing. They are given to striking out a line for themselves in more senses than one, for Miss Gorbuth has already distinguished herself as a lady steeplechaser and public oratory is their newest toy. The sisters make a pretty picture on the platform, but it is not women of their type who need to assert themselves over men and co. However, it amuses them and others, and I doubt if the tyrant has much to fear from their little arrows. <laughs> well, I think... <laughs> Thanks, Sonia, for drawing my attention to that extraordinary reference for the first time. The author of that Vanity Fair editorial may have been somewhat surprised to learn that the little arrows indeed would go on to hit their mark. And I think as a dedicated suffragette, for example, Eva Gorbut on on, went on to have an enormous influence, not only on that issue of suffrage, but her influence in Britain and Ireland. Indeed, Christopher Pankhurst cited Eva Gorbut as her inspiration for political activism, of course, despite the disapproval of her mother, Emmeline, who was inclined not to mention Eva Gorbut. <coughs> But Eva Gorbuth is, is extraordinary, exceptional in so many ways, in that she combined all of the projects of egalitarianism in her work, trade union rights, gender equality, pacifism, and spiritual freedom, even in her writings in Uranus. Dr. Sonia Tiernan, I think, and she's so representative of that fine group of female historians who have restored, through their historiography, the position of women in, in Irish history. She's placed us all in our debt by bringing the life and works of such as Eva, a poet, writer, nationalist, trade unionist, socialist, and in her time, an extraordinary champion for the rights of working people, particularly working women, to the attention of an ever-widening audience. Succeeding, for example, in making it impossible for Winston Churchill to take his seat in Manchester Northwest when in one of her campaigns. Last month, Sabina and I had the privilege of visiting the gravestone near Hampstead Heath where Eva Gorbuth and her partner Esther Roper now rest. On their gravestone is written, Love that is life is God. I think the theologians might well uh, deconstruct that. <laughs> the Serum Single Issue campaign could rarely be applied to these great women of the suffrage movement and organisation. For while living in Manchester, Eva Gobuth and her lifelong partner, Esther Roper, led the Barmaid's Political Defence League to oppose a provision in the Licensing Bill of 1908 which would have provided women from working in licensed premises, throwing thousands of women out of work. It was not only a campaign for the defence of the worker, it was an assertion of the right of women to safely enter such places as they wished. The assumption in the legislation was not that you shouldn't have violence and inappropriate talk in pubs, but rather that you should exclude women so that it could proceed freely in an uninterrupted way. And those who supported the ban on women working in bars 
Also, there would be the women who were working in circuses, including those, for example, that was in relation to performing artists and so forth. It wasn't really that the women should fall out themselves. It is that they shouldn't upset people by letting people see it happen. I think those who supported the, the ban on women working in bars, and who, such as, who claimed barmaids, the other phrase that was used was luring men to drink. But also, uh, Eva criticised some well-meaning temperance suffragists who Eva Gobooth called short-sighted philanthropists. Eva's campaign was not only an unqualified success, as I have said, it had the consequence of ensuring that Winston Churchill failed to take the parliamentary seat of Manchester North West because of his support for the bill. Eva Gobooth then worked as a trade unionist in sectors in which women were the majority of the workforce. And this was very important in the textile industry, where they weren't even allowed representation. And the trade union took their contributions but didn't allow them to full membership. And she understood very well that this circumstance could be used to marginalise women, especially if they were migrants or subject to other forms of discrimination. So I think it is only through legis not only through the legislation, but through campaigns and actions such as these that so many of the obstacles to the participation of women in the political and economic realms have been removed. And I do think of Mary Manning and her co-workers standing outside on stalls for all those days, supporting the struggle against South Africa, apartheid in South Africa, something that was recognised by Mandela himself. Yet so much remains to be done. And yes, the recent initiatives to close the gender pay gap on the part of government and civil society are very welcome. And in doing so, it is important to seriously consider the nature and structure of employment, the definition of work itself, as the United Nations Committee on the Status of Women have enjoined us to do on this International Women's Day. And with so many women members in the Dole and Shannon present today, and Firkin Fajro of Galair, and you are also welcome. It is opportune to recall the centenary of the enactment of the Parliament, the Parliament Qualifications of Women Act of 1918, which enabled the election of the first woman to a national parliament on these islands. I speak, of course, of Eva's sister, Constance Markvik, whose portrait hangs behind me in the Council of State room. When you visited, the, the, and a copy of which was very recently been gifted to the Speaker of the House of Commons by the Count Corner. I trust that it will be hung in a place of prominence. And I do urge those who travel for the North education to go on and visit the grave of Eva Gorbuth and Esther Rupert as well. There may be an irony in this, as of course Constance Markfield never took a seat in Westminster Parliament. Indeed, she did not recognise its authority over Ireland, but when she was elected a member of the first Thal Aaron, Constance Markfield was unable to attend its first meeting in the Mansion House in Dublin on the 21st of January 1919, as she had been interned on the pretext that she had conspired in what was called the German Plot. Though it is more likely that the authorities wish to remove one of the most formidable campaigners against conscription in Ireland. She was jailed along with Hannah Sheehy Skeffington and Maud Gaughan, whose portrait, and I have to say that uh, Maud Gaughan and Constance Markvist's portraits, they are now in that room where the Council of State room, where you have had up to this, you had an all male Council of State, and that is an initiative of Sabina. So they have been put into their proper place. <laughs> 
course, at Constance Markvig was in, 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 in Holloway Prison, uh, together with Kathleen Clark, only four miles to the north of the Parliament buildings in London. Now, that wasn't the first time that Holloway Prison was used to detain political prisoners. It was there that suffragettes such as Charlotte Despard, Christabel and Sylvia Pankhurst were detained during their campaigns during the preceding 15 years. And it was there that the authorities, and now we see how it all changed from those mild comments in Vanity Fair, those sarcastic comments. It was there that the authorities first began the strategy of forcibly feeding suffragette hunger strikers, illustrating, as I've said, what it does, that what began as the mockery of women by Vanity Fair's pin portrait of the go boots had now descended into a form of violence as the cloak of respectability was foregone, as soon as the suffrage movement was seen as presenting a serious and determined challenge to what was entrenched and millennia-old privilege, sustaining patriarchy and its form of authoritarianism, domination and monopoly of the right to hold property, or indeed have or use a political voice. The long use of Holloway Prison to incarcerate both nationalist and suffragist women, indeed these were for nationalist women Complementary appellations is a potent reminder that the generation of women of whom I speak stood at the intersection of what Constance Markovic called the three great movements of thought and action which sought to transform Ireland in the early years of the 20th century. The national movement, the women's movement and the industrial work movement. Is treed is treed the anta. Each of these projects were characterised by antagonistic and sometimes contradictory forces, and indeed members and tendencies within each sometimes opposed and contradicted each other. Each movement, however, was envisioned, particularly by its opponents, as in its own way challenging central tenets of the British constitutional order, whether that was the exercise of political rights, that they should be restricted to men, restricted to those with wealth, or whether all law on these islands should emanate from the British Parliament. Of the three, the women's movement was the movement that faced the most implacable opposition. John Dillon, a leading figure in the Irish Parliamentary Party, someone who was courageously seeking home rule by constitutional reforms and who would later oppose uh, a con conscription on the issue, however famously stated, that expanding the franchise to women would be tantamount to the ruin of civilization. There were indeed those who held such a view on the impact of enfranchised women. Their world was under threat. But there were others who saw that that civilization of which he spoke must be made rid itself of exclusions, that an old civilization built on such exclusions must be made to yield to what was new, urgent, and hopefully egalitarian. Between these interlaced movements, nationalism, the trade union movement, the women's movement, there are obvious parallels and shared strategies. The Pankers' mother and daughter were inspired not only by Eva Gorbuth, but also by the marchers, marchers held for the Manchester Martyrs. For many Irish women, 
the diverse and sometimes conflicting strands of these three movements were but different stages of a single struggle for freedom, justice and equality, one that it was hoped would be realised in the institutions, culture and society of home rule that might be won for Ireland, or for the more radical members in an independent Irish Republic. If the fight for the women's, woman's right to vote and for equal civil rights was transnational in its scope, a campaign that crossed and at its best transcended class, national and political boundaries, it was also one that took place within the very different political, social, economic, historic and cultural context of this, uh, these islands. The struggle was one with a long and painful history through centuries, with brave, never-to-be-forgotten sacrifices having been made by women of their time. We need only recall the petition of Leveller Women of 1648, with its demand for, as it put in its own words, a proportionate share in the freedoms of the Commonwealth. Or Mary Wollstonecraft's 18th century, Vindication of the Rights of Women, which sought nothing less than, in her words, the emancipation of the whole sex, to appreciate the length and depth of this long and shared struggle. And it, it, women too, such as Mary Ann McCracken, who may have been sworn into the United Irish bit, made strides for women through their civic leadership of anti-slavery and social reform movements in the early 19th century. It was Annie Wheeler, who first gave a written expression to the demands of Irish women for political representation in the wonderfully titled Appeal of One Half of the Human Race, Women, Against the Pretensions of the Other, Men. <laughs> that very famous book appeared, of course, under the name of the great philosopher from Cork, William Thompson, who describes himself in the flyleaf of his books as feminist and socialist. It, he... <clears throat> was acknowledged by Karl Marx in Capital. He was a good friend and fellow Irish writer, and as such he was quick to note. It was he who said, it was Annie Wheeler and not he who had written much of the book and to whom the originality of the ideas should be credited. This historical inheritance was available then to fortify and inspire those foundation figures of the suffrage movement in Ireland, Isabella Todd, a Belfast-based Presbyterian, and Anna Haslam, a Quaker and businesswoman from Cork. Their example and their respective organisations, the North of Ireland Women's Suffrage Society and the Dublin Women's Suffrage Association, inspired still more militant suffragists, such as Hannah Shee Skeffington and Margaret Cousins, who were more than willing to move on to direct action to force a seemingly unyielding political order, represented by what was then the Irish Parliamentary Party, led by an avowed anti-suffragist. I've already spoken of the courageous and inspirational work of Eva Gobooth and her sister Constance, who were constantly raising heckles in polite society in their pursuit of suffrage for women. In November 1912, 71 members of the Irish Parliamentary Party voted against the Women's Suffrage Bill and the Women's Suffrage Amendment to the Home Rule Bill. This unleashed, or really, what was the high point of suffrage activity in Ireland, as many men and women feared that the promised Home Rule for Ireland 
shorn of all its progressive promise, would indeed continue to be a patriarchal Ireland, an Ireland in which women could not vote, stand for office, or even exercise the most basic economic and social rights. So it is important too to recognise that the Irish women and the suffrage movement were experienced in struggle, and while they could differ as to tactics, they had the greatest respect for each other as they pursued a shared goal. The term suffragette itself was intended as a diminutive insult, but women took hold of that appellation, and even in the popular consciousness today, the word now summons up an image of a resolute, principled, and when necessary direct and radical activism in the service of a great cause. So as we consider the challenges then that are still to be ventured, it is important to recover and celebrate all of the achievements that I have mentioned. Last month, Sabina and I were invited to the Irish Embassy in London to mark law Breitha with a celebration of the great accomplishments of Irish women, past and present. And while in London we visited the Suffragette Memorial in Christchurch Gardens, only a stone's throw from Caxton Hall, where so many women's suffrage meetings were held. Our visit was a reminder not only of the unity of struggle engaged in by the suffragettes, but also of the divergent paths these struggles took in their distinctive national context. The House of Commons Committee that drafted the 1918 legislation was anxious to ensure that the electorate for the upcoming election would contain an equal number of men and women. And we must remember in the last year of World War I, 40% of the young soldiers were under 19 years of age. And given the number of men who had died in the First World War, this seemingly lazy expression of the twofold prejudice of class and age that was contained in the legislation was required to give effect to the objectives of the draftsman, and they were all men. It was not until then, 1928, that an equal franchise was extended throughout Britain and Northern Ireland. And then, in the new Irish state, the context was different, and I would suggest that it is a testament to the activism, courage and fortitude of the Irish Women's Franchise League, the Irish Women's Suffrage Federation, the Irish Women Workers' Union, in Nini Neheran and Comanamon, that the Irish Free State extended the right to vote to, in the words of the Constitution of the 22 Free State, every person without distinction of sex over the age of 21 in 1923, five years earlier than would follow in the other island. Formal political equality in the new state, however, was not matched by real political equality. Neither was it matched by any real economic, social or civic equality. And thus the Irish Women Workers' Union, founded by women such as Delia Larkin and Louis Bennett, faced an uphill battle, not only against the rulers of the new state and their attitudes, but also at times against their less enlightened comrades in some parts of the trade union movement. If I might quote the great Helena Maloney, veteran of the Irish Citizen Army in 1916 and leader of the Irish Women Workers' Union and president of what was then known as the Irish Trade Union Congress, writing in 1930, she said, Women may have achieved the once coveted right to vote, but they still have their inferior status, their lower pay for equal work, their exclusion from juries and certain branches of the civil service 
their slum dwellings and crowded and insanitary schools for their children, as well as the lowered standard of life for workers, which in their capacity as homemakers hits the woman with full force. Real equality, despite the promise of the proclamation in the democratic programme of the first Dáil Éireann, still had to be fought for in a society that yielded so slowly and so painfully to change. Let us honour all those women as well who inherited that legacy and struggled in those conditions. Today, I salute the 35 women who hold seats in a doll of 158 members, the 19 senators in a Senate of 60. Yes, the 40% increase in 2011, still far too low. So this moment, this time, 100 years since, one of the greatest victories of the women's movement should, and I believe will be, should be, and I believe will be, one of recommitment and re-engagement with the structural sources of injustice. On this centenary, we recall that despite the many necessary divisions within the suffrage movement, divisions between unionists and nationalists, war and peace, the organisation of the economy, it was capable of uniting women and men around a single transformative political demand. There is a lesson for us all in that discourse. Today, that should be an inclusive, equal, sustainable republic of citizens, willing to offer real republican egalitarian values to our partners, to ourselves at home, to our partners in Europe and to the world. And despite our diverse political traditions, partisan affiliations, strongly held convictions, as we do this, we must all unite our efforts behind the defence and advance of the political, civic, social and economic rights of women, wherever they may be, wherever they may live, whatever they may be hoping for, and whatever the form of their struggle. A greeny core, let us then on this International Women's Day vow to continue that struggle that is, of course, both local, global, national, international. Bernard is Camille Mille Thank you very much. <laughs>